Welcome to Tea Fascination. In this week's episode, it's part one of our discussion about growing tea in America, and Andy interviews Angela McDonald. So far on this season of Tea Fascination, we have discussed the most expensive tea in the world, which is all the way from China, and we talked about the London Tea Auctions. And those London Tea Auctions were selling products that were made in India, and grown in, rather, in India and, and Africa. And, and, and now I kind of feel like my, my, I've been wondering about this, and it kind of brings it a bit closer to home. Like, what is the tea growing situation here in the U.S.? And, and like, Andy, I can imagine, like, one of the first questions that you get asked is, where do you guys get your tea from? It's true. We get that asked that question a lot. Um, and it's hard to answer because we source for a variety of places. I mean, we, in essence, we kind of spread the love as to where we source. But prim- most tea comes from China or India and Africa. Sure. So there's those three places. Um, and I think that, you know, it's sad that we can't get our tea from here. And we've looked into that. Um, you know, growing our own is an option, clearly, but that takes five to seven years, right? Yep. <laughs> and so if you look at who produces tea in the world, China's the top producer. They do about two million tons a year. The next is India, and the next is Kenya, Kenya Sri Lanka, Vietnam, Turkey, Iran, Indonesia, Argentina, and then Japan. So even wow. Japan isn't in the top five. Wow. So the U.S. doesn't even make it on the, on any list of tea producers okay. you know, that I found. And um, it's not for lack of trying, I would say. Okay. So um, it's interesting that the Camellia sinensis seeds, which is the the sinensis is the plant, the tea plant. They were sent to Savannah, Georgia, which is you know right up the road in <laughs> 1744, and they were supposed to be planted in this place. They're famous is called the Trust Gardens, according to official reports. I don't know where these official reports are from, I mean, sure. whatever, but they just say official reports. The seeds didn't germinate. Um, however, according to an 1857 U.S. Patent Office filing, tea was growing on Skidway Island, which is near Savannah. Sure. Um, and that was short-lived. The reason that they stated was a, a funding and a malaria epidemic. So, yeah. uh, and it makes perfect sense that during like colonial times prior to the Revolutionary War with you know everything being tied to tea, obviously we think about revolution, we think about the Boston Tea Party and yeah. tea tax. Um, and when you think about that, it makes perfect sense that as the colonies were expanding, you know they would have attempted to have grown tea, especially in Savannah um, and back during that period of time. Um, and uh, yeah, it's. It, it, I think that one thing that we're going to see a common thread here is bad luck, I, I think and that, I and, mean, and I bad think timing. That. It's like Murphy's Law. You know what I mean? <laughs> when it comes to tea in the U.S., if it can go wrong, it will find some way to go wrong. I think so. I think you know we had, we'll talk about later, like as to you know why it kind of never took off commercially here. But yeah, tea is a, one of those plants, and it's like a lot of crops it does take several years it's a slow growing plant sure so you know you're looking at five to seven years before you're even going to be able to get your first crop so you have to make it through those years sure 
before you can even get to kind of picking your tea. And then processing tea is also a whole monster in and of itself. So once you pick it, then you gotta gotta process it. So Absolutely. I think that might be part of it too. It's a bit complicated. Um, there is a tea plantation here though, um, close to Savannah in Charleston. It, it was called the Charleston Tea Plantation. I think now it's referred to as the Charleston Tea Garden. In 2020, they changed their name. Um, Dr. Charles Shepard created the Pinehurst Tea Plantation in Somerville, South Carolina. He grew tea there until 1915. Um, he died. And the tea plantation was left unkempt, and his plants kind of just went nuts and grew wild for the next 45 years. Okay, so what happens when tea plants grow wild <laughs> yeah. for 45 years? They I mean, just, I, I have to ask I, that question. It's like they just, I, have, I guess they turn into like a forest. I, I mean, they're, they can get big. I mean, it is a camellia plant. They don't grow as big as like, you know, the other camellias, like the Sasquatch or other camellias that we have here. But they can get big and bushy. Right on. And, you know, they start to kind of spread. So, yeah, I mean, I can see while they were growing wild. I mean, you know, he, um, the, the, those plants um, were moved, though. So they were able okay. to move them, I guess, get a hold of them, to a 127-acre potato farm located on Wadmala Island, which is right outside Charleston. Okay. So in 1963, they were moved. So yeah, there was a good 45 years there. And then in 1987, a third generation tea tester, taster, William Barclay Hall, purchased the farmland, purchased that potato farm, and turned it into a commercial tea operation. And then the Charleston Tea Plantation was born. And he was a tea taster, so he clearly had knowledge on creating tea, processing tea, sure. doing all that. So he wasn't you know, just walking into it. Um, that was the first American-grown tea that was processed. It was done there. In 2003, Bigelow bought the Charleston Tea Plantation. Um, so tea's made in the U.S., but this tea isn't available to you know other wholesalers or other tea makers here in the U.S. because Bigelow owns it, so therefore it's used for their brand. And strictly their brand. Strictly their brand. Okay. Yeah, they are not wholesaling it. Okay. Um, so... That's the whole Bigelow story there. So it's a, in essence, they are still growing tea. You can go visit there and you know see how they make it. Okay. Lipton though also tried to get in the game. Right. You know? And um, they had been conducting tea growing experience experiments in the U.S. for a while. The one that we're going to mention is the one in Fairhope, Alabama. Um, in 1979, there was a Hurricane Frederick blew in. And Lipton terminated the experiments. And they kind of don't know why. Was it the hurricane? Was it something else? It's kind of a mystery as to literally why they just abandoned the sure. experiment in Fairhope. They just up and left. Um, and <clears throat> they left their tea plants. But the tea plants were kind of bulldozed into a debris pile. There was somebody who went and rescued those tea plants. His wow. name was Bill Barrett and his son Donnie. And they now operate something called the Fairhope Tea Plantation. Bill, again, it was somebody who had experience, who knew the plants. Bill Bart was an agricultural research scientist. Okay. And he had been um, a camellia collector. He was developing lots of different types of varietals and entering camellia shows. So he knew the plant. He knew what it needed. Okay. Because it's a camellia. 
and they took plant and they took, uh, all the whole family got involved and they started to propagate and cultivate the camellias creating the Fairhope tea plantation. So like I hate to just re- rewind, right? But like I, I don't know maybe it's just my conspiracy like theory like mindset, but like why on earth would you go through the the logistical like nightmare that would be setting up a situation like they did in Fairhope? Only to abandon it. I it mean, it makes no sense. And, and it's like, weird. And for me, like, if if the hurricane had done a lot of damage to infrastructure, like, why bulldoze the plants? Like, uh, that's kind so of the one bizarre. thing. Yeah, yeah, that, that 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 doesn't logically like ring true for me. Like, it's there's just some really interesting questions there. Yeah, like, it kind of feels like there could be like a an, an entire episode devoted to like what happened in Fairhope because like I don't know. This just it, it blows my mind that, that they would bulldoze the plants. It doesn't make any sense. That's why the thing is really weird, and that's why it's a bit of a mystery as to why Lipton just gave it up. I think they initially blamed it on the hurricane, but, you know, there doesn't seem as though that was, I think it was a convenient excuse. Okay. Um, however, I don't know. It could have been the fact, which I, my putting my money on, was money that it was getting too expensive to do upkeep and sure. to have the people there employed to maintain it, and so they just decided that you know the hurricane was kind of the last straw, and right. they just like forget it because they had tried, I think, in other areas to plant tea, and they all kind of came to naught. So my guess is that it just was too expensive when they're getting their tea so cheap from China and other places, and mm-hmm. they actually own. In Africa, they do own several other plantations, plantations. and things like mm. that. So it's like okay. at that point, well, why are we wasting our time? I mean, that's sure. what I that was that's my guess. Okay, well, I mean, it's just it's crazy because you know you just have two com- completely different situations in South Carolina. The teas were the tea plants were left to grow and yeah. and to grow wild and to mature, and then you know obviously in Fairhope, it's a totally different scenario where they're literally destroyed. Almost. Uh, yeah, and I don't you know, know if they decided to destroy them so they wouldn't grow wild. And mm. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting situation, and yeah. I mean, like you know, whether it's uh, whether it's uh, you know malaria epidemics that knock Savannah <laughs> right. off track in 1744, or, or whether it's hurricanes rolling up through you know the southeast and, and, and derailing what Lipton was trying to do um, in, in Alabama in Fairhope. It's just uh, I don't know. It just kind of seems like the deck is stacked against tea. Uh, growing here in the southeast. It, it, it's true. I do want to mention, though, that the Fairhope plants, they, they're now called Fairhope plants, and you can buy them online on Plants right. if you wanted your... Yeah, so they've done a lot to help people grow plants if they wanted to grow a tea plant. That's awesome. And, yeah, we have some Fairhope. So, Very cool. Yeah, it is really cool how they propagated those plants and they sell them. There's a... I do want to mention a nursery. It's called the Camellia Forest Nursery in... North Carolina, and they are where we got ours, but they All help right. a lot of people if they want to plant tea in their own garden or whatever, they'll recommend the right kind and plant for you guys, so it's just a good resource to have. That's awesome. I do find it strange, though, that Lipton and Bigelow, who are two big, huge tea companies, they're not growing tea here. I mean, even though I get that it's cheaper and things like that to grow overseas, you would still think that they'd want to grow something here Sure. Just for the supply chain, you know. I mean, you just, you, you basically take the entire, like, globe, it's, it's a global supply chain. Right. 
right? And you can shorten that drastically right. by growing it here. That's right. I think it's partly to do with how it's processed. I had mentioned before that it, processing it is a, there's a many, many steps involved as well as the labor cost to pick it. So up until recently, you've had to hand pick the tea. Okay. So to do that is kind of brutal. And just the labor cost in America would be so crazy that it kind of makes it cost prohibitive to grow it here. That's my guess as to why they haven't grown it here, even though it would make sense to grow it here. I think that's it. You know, we Angela mentioned um, that there is now a machine, which is a game changer, and she'll okay. talk about that, that's helping with that. And she did also mention that the labor costs are one of the reasons it probably hasn't been grown here. But her name is Angela McDonald, and she's the president of the U.S. League of Tea Growers. So there are people okay. here that want to grow tea, sure. myself included. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's just a really great thing. I think processing tea, <clears throat> it's just like wine. It has so many different steps, and every factor has to be, you know, temperature controlled and timed and everything else to reproduce the same tea over and over and over again, similar to wine and how it's aged. I just, you know, that to me is exciting. It's kind of a little bit of a chemistry experiment. Sure, quite meticulous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. In yeah. execution. So um, I think that there are people here that are starting to want to grow it, and um, there are companies doing it successfully recently, which you know, which is great to know. And that's always an encouraging sign. It is. The Great Mississippi Tea Company is doing it here, and I mention them because they're the only ones that I know of that have won like awards. Sure. Nationally and internationally for their tea. So they're okay. growing good tea. So a lot of people say, oh, yeah, anybody can grow tea, but they can't grow good tea. Well, <laughs> you can. <laughs> Just take some patience, a little tweaking. And some time. <laughs> yeah. And some time, apparently. Yes. <laughs> yes. A good five to seven years Absolutely. to even get your crop. Yeah. Well, I think this is a perfect opportunity to go ahead and introduce the interview that Andy was able to record when she got to sit down with Angela McDonald. So growing tea in the U.S., um, I, it's been done many times um, over a long period of time. There um, were, you know, early on in settlements when ships were coming across bringing goods, you know, teas and whatnot from China and from, you know, Japan and various wares, you know, people would bring seeds over, tea seeds, tea plants, people, you know, they'd trade them and people would plant them around the U.S. Um, just mostly on a very small scale. And um, the, I mean, so people found that tea did grow here. But nobody knew what to do with it. Nobody knew um, what type of conditions it really liked. Um, so they would grow, but not really thrive. And um, they also didn't know how to process the tea at all. So, you know, even you look at um, when Robert Fortune went over in the 1850s to bring the tea plant from China, it was still widely believed in England at that point. When tea was very common and it was being consumed here in the U.S. in the settlements, um, people still thought at that point that black and green tea were from different plants. 
and they didn't know anything about the processing method. They didn't know anything about the growing. It was all done so far away and they were so far removed from it that it was just kind of this thing that showed up that became such a big, you know, central part of their lives, but they didn't really know how it was made. And it's actually still that way to some degree. I mean, people have a slightly better sense of it now than, than they did back then, but it's kind of the same way. So when people, you know, when I'm out serving teas to people, I'll still get that question. What does an Earl Grey tea bush look like as opposed to a jasmine green bush, you know? And it's like, okay, you know, that's a whole question we got to unpack. But, you know, it, and people, you know, tea people laugh about that, but I'm like, it's actually a really reasonable question because these things look so different that how would you just know that they all came from exactly the same leaf? You know, it, it's, it's a very mysterious product, which is why education is such a big, you know, factor in the tea industry and especially in the specialty tea industry, mm -hmm. as I'm sure you know. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so, so going back, tea, you know, had been grown on small scales. There were a few people who actually got really passionate about growing tea. There was a man, um, um, Dr. Oh, what's his name? I'll have to look it up. Um, but he was growing tea right around the turn of the uh, 19th century, well, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, and he um, won a award at the World Fair for his teas. But it was something that he was very passionate about. And then once he passed away, um, his tea farm basically died with him. Nobody really took it up after that. And he produced tea on, you know, a small scale and it was, you know, probably sold, I don't know for how much or anything like that, but it would have of course have to have been sold for a lot more than the stuff that they were importing. Though he had, um, and this is slightly um, sketchy in my opinion, but he, the labor that he had was from um, children at a um, local like orphanage that I think he kind of also helped run. So, you know, the labor was a little bit different than what we would have in a normal manufacturing situation now. Um, and so, you know, again, there were a few things like that that kind of took place. The plant grew, but you know, you had to you had to really love it to be actually growing it and processing it. And it was never on an industrial scale. Um, back in the 1960s, um, with the Cold War. Lipton did a whole set of experiments um, at, where they grew tea in various parts of the US and Hawaii and California, um, in uh, a couple places around the South. Air Hope. And, mm -hmm. Air Hope. Right. Um, and those went well. The, the plants grew. I mean, Lipton, of course, had enough experience with growing them. They knew what type of conditions they liked, all those things. But what they what they concluded at the end of the experiments was that essentially they could grow it here it was way the labor was way too expensive mm -hmm. to really be able to produce it the reason they had started on that experiment was that you know with the cold war happening they were concerned about our supply of tea being cut off and even though, you know, we think of the U.S. as being such a, you know, big coffee drinking nation, which it is, you know, especially around the South, 
fatigue never went away. You know, it has always been consumed in, you know, not as large a quantities as some countries, of course, but there's a lot of people in the US who have always consumed tea and been very dependent on it. So they wanted to keep that supply going. And with the political threats, they weren't positive that that relationship would be maintained with the producing countries. But by the time the experiments were done, you know, they were a little more um, um, assured that, you know, the supply chain would be in place and it was too expensive to produce it here. So they just abandoned the experiments. It was just kind of, it was just done. So, you know, again, it's it's been done, people have tried it, but, you know, that question keeps coming up of, you know, why do it? Why do it now? Um, because, you know, people have tried it and, it, and it's, you know, from an economic standpoint, it didn't work. So what's changed? Um, actually, a lot has changed in that sense. So, for one, there's a much larger specialty tea market. It used to only be a commodity tea market. Very few people drank specialty tea. Specialty tea was probably a loose English breakfast, you know, from England. Um, but now there's so much more tea available in the U.S. and people are willing to pay a much higher price for really good tea. And they're also more educated about tea, where it comes from, all these things. And so again, they're looking for something new, something different, unique, and they're excited about um, domestically grown tea. Um, prices in um, tea growing countries or tea producing countries such as you know India, China, Kenya, prices of the tea are increasing. It used to, it used to just be dirt cheap you know because the labor was so inexpensive. but now between shortages of labor and the fact that they're actually paying, tea work or people working at the tea plantations a more livable wage, at least a lot of producers are. Um, it's just not as cheap as it used to be, which is a good thing. I don't think it should be, you know, built by slave labor. You know, that's that's not a healthy industry and it's not good for people. So um, so prices are just rising naturally, plus the, um, or climate change is really rapidly changing the production levels of tea across the world. So, you know, it's predicted that in 20 years, Assam may not be able to produce any more tea due to climate conditions. And Assam produces a huge amount of tea that is used in the commodity market globally. So what happens you know, when, when that supply dries up completely, it's gonna change and prices are gonna be, are gonna go up. So prices are going up across the board. It's not as cheap as it used to be. And um, so that's again, gonna just, you know, drive people towards knowing that they have to pay a little bit more for, for tea and for specialty teas. Um, and so that's another factor. Let's see, then there's the mechanization. And that's a really huge one for domestic tea growers. If you have to hand harvest tea, it is so expensive to do that here in the US. It is just, I mean, it's, it's cost prohibitive. It means that you have to tell, sell your tea for so much that you're not gonna really make a profit. Mm -hmm. If you use mechanization, you know, the, the old 
type of mechanization where you know it was basically like hedge trimmers um, that you would take across the top of the um, plants, which works to some degree. You're going to get you know a product that's an okay quality, but not really very high quality um, and you're going to have a lot of time sorting out, you know, old leaves, broken leaves, twigs, you know, all those different things. So that's going to bring up the labor cost. Um, but, you know, it just, it was, it was not cost effective at all to be able to do that until these new harvesters, um, which the Great Mississippi Tea Company is um, working on, um, uh, trying out, uh, or, um, what's the word? It's early still. I'm not quite coming it, up with words. Um, he had mentioned experimenting that. with, um, from South Africa, I believe from, um, Australia. Australia. Okay. Yeah. Um, those harvesters simulate hand plucking mm -hmm. and I've seen it. I've done it with them on the farm. It's amazing. Oh, wow. You know, the That's amount of game changer. Oh, it's a huge, it's a complete game changer. Yeah. Even before they were hand harvesting their tea mm -hmm. and selling it, you know, for, a, you know, still a fairly high price, you know, in terms of the tea market, but they weren't actually selling it at a profit. They were still selling it at a loss um, if you counted their labor. Mm -hmm. And even then, like Timmy is a really fast plucker. I've been in fields plucking with Timmy and he always ends up with double what I do, you know? And I mean, part of that's experience, part of it is, you know, just, he's just fast. But, um, you know, it's, it's hard to get people, it, laborers into the fields to do this kind of work, especially in places where it grows really well, like the South, when it might be hundred degrees outside and hundred percent humidity, you know, it's just miserable to be out in those fields. I was down there a while ago and my tender Oregonian skin that isn't used to the sun, I got so sunburned from an afternoon of hand plucking. I, yeah, it was one of the worst burns I've ever had. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really hard to, um, to get the leaf without the machinery. And then also processing, if you're hand rolling, yeah, it takes forever. It's yeah, we've already decided that we're not hand rolling. Yeah, that's not for us, yeah. No, I mean, it's fun to do as like a demonstration, as an experiment. Yeah. But having to sit there and roll and roll and roll small batches of tea is miserable. <laughs> you get really strong arms, but it's just really not fun to do. So again, they have all the machinery for that. Now the machinery for rolling and you know drying and things like that isn't new. That's been available for a while. You have to bring it all in from China, but it's been available. But the harvester is really the big thing. We could go over an entire row of tea that would probably take us, you know, two hours to pluck by hand. Mm -hmm. We can skim over the top of it and, you know, get all the leaf off in, you know, 30 seconds mm -hmm. with that harvester. You just go one row, next row, the next row. And I thought, oh, there's still going to be a huge amount of sorting that has to happen with this. I was amazed how little there was. I mean, there's a few little things that it picked up or, you know, maybe there was a piece of grass that was growing up in the field that broke off, but 
really. I mean, there was so little sorting that had to happen even with that. So the labor was just, I mean, you know, I can't even tell you the fraction that it, um, or, you know, that it's brought it down to in terms of manual labor. And so at that point, once you have the harvesters, the rollers, you know, all of the machinery that you need, it's really not that difficult to produce a lot of tea. And those harvesters, again, you know, people think of, of mechanized harvesting as producing low quality tea. Yeah. It, it produces a fantastic cup of tea. Wow. You know, the quality is just amazing. And so, you know, at this point, almost, I think all of their teas, except maybe not one, either it's their green or their oolong, I can't remember, they still have to hand harvest a bit just because of the way that it's done. But, um, but all of their teas are produced using this, um, this harvester now, and they're fantastic. They're phenomenal teas. So, you know, that's been a huge game changer. And that just wasn't available before just a couple of years ago. You know, we knew the technology was coming, mm -hmm. but we didn't really know when, and there were some things from Japan that were better than others, but it's just, it's come so far that it's really actually practical now to grow, harvest, process tea and sell it at a profit. And they've been selling their teas consistently for enough years now, they have a huge customer base and they're repeat customers. And that's a huge difference because for example, there's been a few growers that have produced what, you know, essentially commodity tea. You know, they've, they've made lower grade bagged tea, which again, lower labor costs. You don't have to be as picky about the plug. You can just do it fully uh, mechanized and bag it. American consumers are more used to tea bags, and so it's a larger audience. But the problem is that you just can't compete with the price of commodity tea from other countries. Plus, you, you still have to produce a good cup of tea. And often with commodity or people who are producing commodity tea here in the US, they think, oh, it just kind of has to sort of taste like tea, and then it'll be fine. Well. You know, is somebody going to go to the grocery store and say, oh, I want to pay $2 extra for, you know, a, a box of American grown tea bags versus a box of Bigelow or Stash tea bags when it doesn't necessarily taste as good. So you have to produce that quality so that people will be repeat customers because it's easy to get somebody to buy your tea once as kind of a novelty. This is fun. This is different. This is interesting. But if they don't want to drink it every single day, they're not going to buy it again. And then you're not going to be able to have a business. I mean, just like, you know, with your teas, I have teas that I've found, you know, that I thought were really interesting, really good. And the first year that I brought it out and debuted it, it sold well, but then the next year it's just like nothing. I'm like, well, okay, apparently that was one that people bought thinking maybe it would be good, but they didn't actually drink enough to really come back and buy more. Mm -hmm. So then you, you know, call those from your line from your line and whatever. But if that's what you've built your business on, it's really hard to generate those sales and sell your product. Mm -hmm. And in the very beginning, you only produce a small amount of tea. And so it's not necessarily hard to get rid of that first amount. But as the tea, as the bushes grow and you're starting to produce hundreds and thousands of pounds of tea, mm -hmm. 
you have to be able to sell it. Mm-hmm. You have to produce a high quality cup that's, you know, really good tea. It has to be good. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's a great, you know, regionality that, you know, of course, we all think of with teas. You think of Assam teas, Darjeeling teas, Yunnan teas, you know, Puer, you know, all these different regional distinctions with teas. And the U.S. has the same potential to do that, mm-hmm. you know, just like with the wine market. They, you know, when they, when people first started producing wine over here in Oregon and California and Washington, you know, they didn't really get a lot of recognition, you know, among international competitions and things. Cause they were like, oh, it's just kind of a cheap knockoff of what we already produce. And we know how to produce, you know, wine better in Europe or, you know, wherever. And so they didn't really get anywhere until they started saying, you know, we need to create our own regional flavor. So they started, you know, focusing on like the Pinots, the Pinot Noir and Pinot, and um, then, you know, they really, they said that one is suited or that style is suited really well for our flavor profile that we produce in our region. And so, you know, and then they took it off on a whole nother, you know, kind of tangent from where it had originally been thought to be because that was, the distinctive flavor of the wines from our country or from our region. And so now they're recognized internationally, not as being great replicas of other types of wine, but as being a whole different style of wine that you can't produce anywhere else in the world because of that regionality. And so the US has kind of the same potential to do that. And people are so aware now of the regional distinctions between different types of products, you know, when we're talking about olive oils and wines and all the, and even teas. And so they're excited about that. And there's a lot of potential then to export the teas as well, because people in other countries are going to also want to be able to say, hey, you know, I really liked those teas from southern U.S. or western U.S., you know, and, and different, we'll start to get our own distinctive flavor profiles that people will start to recognize internationally. So there's a lot of potential now that wasn't necessarily there before, again, in terms of, you know, um, the economics of being able to produce tea and sell it, the market for the type of tea that we're producing, plus just the education around, you know, the types of tea, how they're made, why they cost what they do, all these things. So there's there's so much potential right now to grow and sell tea in the US. And so it's it's a really exciting time to be in the industry. I get I get excited about talking about it. No, I think it's I mean I think so too. And I think that you explained everything really well. Now why now is the time to start growing the tea. And why in the past it hasn't. I mean, that's really what we wanted to focus on. I think that um, the other thing that I wanted you to just mention, if you can, if somebody wanted to start growing tea, what would be like their first steps that they would take in terms of getting started? Well, (sighs) 
I mean, I know that's a huge question, but yeah. <laughs> sorry. But, no, that's okay. It's it's a really good question though, because it's a hard one. And the the place that most people stumble with getting to the point of production in tea is that, well, two things. They don't necessarily spend the time budgeting, especially for how long it's gonna take before this product actually produces anything in terms of you know, finances, it, you know, from, from the beginning of prepping the soil up until, um, you know, you're really harvesting and selling tea, you know, in, in a quantity that you can, you know, consistently sell, you know, not talking a pound or two, but, you know, more like 50, a hundred, several hundred pounds, you know, it's going to be at least probably four or five years. Yeah. yeah. And during that time, you have to just dump money into it. You know, you're paying for the land, you're paying for the plants, you're paying for labor, you're, you know, all these things. And so it's, a, and, and that may seem like, okay, I can just plan for that, but that's a really long time to have to just be dumping money into something with no return. Mm-hmm. The nice thing about it is that you do that for five years and then the plants can live, you know, 50 to 100 years. And once they're established, there's really very little that they need other than fertilizing and pruning. Yeah, water. Yeah, irrigation. Yeah, and, yeah. and some water, the once they're really well established, they may not even need very much water. Mm-hmm. So, you know, depends on your climate, of course. So, you know, it's, it's pretty low maintenance at that point, but those first several years are brutal. Mm-hmm. Now it's the same with any kind of a crop or with any kind of a permanent crop. I was just down in California talking to an uncle who um, grows almonds mm-hmm. and, you know, I was, he was asking about growing teas, thinking about diversifying. And so I was telling him and I was like, you know, it's going to be five, you know, five, six years before you're really producing much. He was like, well, of course, you know, that's just, that's how it goes, you know? And, and so for people who are used to growing tree crops and things, that's mm-hmm. not, a big factor, but, um, but a lot of people think, okay, you know, it'll be a year or two and then I'll get enough to start, you know, processing or whatever. And it's really not, it takes a really long time and it's a long haul in that beginning stage. Um, it's a lot of work. It also, um, you know, anytime you're farming, things go wrong. Even if you do all everything right and how it's supposed to be, things, things, yeah, things will happen, you know, you'll have a bad, you know, heat wave, you'll have a drought, you'll have a, you know, whatever, and plants will die, bug problems, disease, anything. So, you know, plan, like have in your budget that it's going to cost more than you think it's going to. And that it's going to take longer than you think it's going to. And don't get too discouraged if you plant, you know, a a half acre of tea and they all die. Because that happens. If you ask Jason and Timmy, they'll tell you the first, I can't remember if it was one or two acres they planted, every single plant died. Mm -hmm. Every one of them. And that was, you know, I don't even know how many thousands of dollars just gone. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's frustrating, 
but you just have to then take that as, well, what went wrong? What happened? And what do we learn from that? And I always tell people, start small. You know, don't plant a full acre your first time. Mm -hmm. Plant a quarter of an acre or even less than that. Mm -hmm. See if those plants survive the year and then do a little more. You know, do, I, I mean, even Jason and Timmy who have it down to exact science at this point, they don't really plant more than about an acre at a time. Mm -hmm. They slowly increase and they're, you know, they have a lot of tea now. But again, they had, you know, Nigel Malkin consulting for them, who's one of the best consultants in the world. They, you know, they did all their research, did everything right. And they still would lose, you know, so many plants and it just happens. It just does. There's so many factors that go into it. Um, so, so yeah, I guess make sure that you have a really solid budget going into it, know how long it's going to take. Um, and, um, do your research. It's really, really hard with tea plants. You know, it's not an annual crop where you, you know, it's not like planting tomatoes where you plant a row of tomatoes and then you say, oh shoot, I planted them a little close together. Okay. Next year I'll plant them a little farther apart. You don't get that many chances with tea unless they, you know, something goes wrong and they die, but you, you plant them, you get them established you don't really get a chance to move them or, you know, change the row spacing or anything like that at all. So what you do in the beginning, you're kind of stuck with and prepping your soil, making sure that you have irrigation set up, making sure that your rows are made in a way that you can get a harvester through. Yeah. That was something that we've been looking at. Yeah. <laughs> You know, because there have been some of the, or one of the universities, I can't remember which one, had planted some tea and, you know, grew them and got them going. And then afterwards, we're saying, well, wait a second, we can't fit this new harvester over, you know, a double row. It's too wide. And it's like, well, you're stuck with it. Yeah. You want to just take out all the plants that have established over the past four or five years and redo it. There's just, you know, so you just, you have to be very careful about planning in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Don't think, oh, I'll fix it later because there isn't a fixing it later unless you want to take out your plants. <laughs> so those are the big things, you know, really do your research. Okay. And also know that, you know, I, I always... I always tease Nigel and Jason because, you know, when people ask them questions about tea, about growing tea, they'll just say, well, it depends. And I'm like, I need to give people more specific information than that. But they're like, but it really does just depend because it depends on the area that you're in, the, the soil type that you have, the weather pattern, the uh, latitude that you're growing at, you know, all these things will make a huge impact on how you fertilize, how or what time of year you plant the bushes, um, what your yield is going to be, how often you'll be able to harvest. You know, there's so many different things that will impact it. So it's, you know, it, if you look at something and say, okay, J, you know, Jason and Timmy are doing this down in Mississippi, I should do that. Well, here in Oregon, 
it's, you know, we're actually technically in the same growing zone. It's, you know, zone 8B, at, you know, here in Eugene, Oregon, as it is in um, Brookhaven, Mississippi. But their seasons are so wildly different than ours that there's no way I could plant or prune or harvest in the exact same way that they're going to do it. It's just completely different. So you really have to look at what your climate is. And when looking at you know, how you're going to formulate your plant plan for growing tea, look at what are the ideal conditions or ideal practices for growing tea and how will that fit into my environment? Mm-hmm. Not, you know, this is what one person's doing who's successful in India. I should do that here. It's they've created, or, you know, they have this environment that the tea is, is producing really well in. So how can I make that in my climate? Mm-hmm. So make sure that everything is really narrowed in to where you are growing. Okay. But thank you so much. That's like, I think that's important. That's really good advice. The only other question I was going to ask, if somebody just wanted to plant one tea plant, is there a nursery or a place that you could recommend where they would go figure out what tea plant to plant in their yard or their garden or whatever it is? Camellia Forest. Um, owned by um, Christine Parks. It's, um, they have a really wide selection of plants. Okay. Um, I think they probably have the biggest selection of anybody that I know of in the country. I, and, that's hmm? the one in North Carolina, correct? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they do. I think, I think you're right. Yes. Yeah. And they, you know, Christine is, is knowledgeable about, you know, if you call her up and say, I'm in this climate, you know, I have really cold winters or I have really long, you know, hot summers or whatever, she'll be able to help you, you know, identify which plants are going to be good for your region and give you some basic growing instructions. Awesome. We'll include a link to, of them too in the, sh- in the notes uh-huh. too. Yeah. Thank they're a great resource. Yeah. Yeah. We like them. Barone teas are artisan teas, made and mixed in small batches. Their proprietary formulas are designed for holistic wellness without sacrificing taste, so you can get all the benefits of the herbs and full-leaf tea leaves along with amazing flavors. Flavors like southern pecan, peach berry, magnolia, and peach blossoms bring southern scents home to your mug. Their organic blends are packaged in biodegradable pyramid tea bags, so you know you are getting the finest herbs and teas out there without any extra chemicals. Their herbal formulas are designed to aid you on many different levels, from top to bottom and from inside to outside. Their black and green teas are made from whole leaf teas, never powdered, and that allows for more antioxidants and goodness in each cup. They believe the act of sipping a beautiful cup of tea can be just as healing as the tea itself. So go visit Barone Teas and try them out for yourself. Start your mornings with a cup of Barone Tea and help make your day a bit more magical. Tea Fascination's theme music is No Clouds, performed by Ketza. Tea Fascination is recorded, mixed, and edited by Duncross Media. For all your digital marketing needs, go to www.duncrossmedia.com. With nearly a decade's experience in digital marketing, Duncross Media is an effective and affordable option for all your digital marketing needs.